This lecture is brought to you by Knox Theological Seminary on iTunes U. Knox is a seminary in the tradition of the Reformation that exists to educate men and women to declare and demonstrate the gospel of Jesus Christ. Our prayer is that this teaching will be beneficial in your Christian life and ministry. To keep moving along, um, faith frees you from the law because of this distinction between law and gospel. The second thing that faith does is that it honors God as God, as he says. It says um, it honors God by considering him truthful and trustworthy. This is on page 284. Um, the, the way to, to, I think, explain this the quickest is, uh, is reading from the large catechism on Luther's explanation of the first commandment. Um, it says, what does it mean to have a God? That's, that's a question. What does it mean to have a God? And Luther's answer is, a God is the term for that to which we are to look for all good and in which we are to find refuge in all need. Therefore, to have a God is nothing else than to trust and believe in that one with your whole heart. As I, as I have often said, it is the trust and faith of the heart alone that make both God and an idol. If your faith and trust are right, then your God is the true one. Conversely, where your trust is false and wrong, there you do not have the true God. For these two belong together, faith and God. Anything on which your heart relies and depends, I say, that is really your God. So what, it, you know, what he's saying is that faith that is created by the Holy Spirit directs that trust and honor to its proper object. It, in the words of the Galatians commentary, it it creates the divine, it creates the divinity for me. Um, so it, it, it lets God be God, as it were. Um, okay, got that? Is that, is that clear? Okay, now the, now the really interesting one that I'm sort of rushing to get to is this third one, um, where faith it frees you from the law. It honors God as God. But the thing that people often come to in this section is that faith unites the soul with Christ. Um, this is on page 286. And I, I just want to read this, this piece out loud. Um, so if you want to look on with me or not, you can just listen. Um, it says, The third incomparable benefit of faith is that it unites the soul with Christ as a bride is united with her bridegroom. By this mystery, as the apostle teaches, Christ and the soul become one flesh. And if they are one flesh and there is between them a true marriage, indeed the most perfect of all marriages, since human marriages are but poor examples of this one true marriage, it follows that everything they have they hold in common, the good as well as the evil. Yeah. Accordingly, the believing soul can boast of and glory in whatever Christ has, as though it were his, its own. And whatever the soul has... And and whatever the soul has, Christ claims as his own. Let us compare these and we shall see inestimable benefits. Christ is full of grace, life, and salvation. The soul is full of sins, death, and damnation. Now let faith come between them, and sins, death, and damnation will be Christ's, while grace, life, and salvation will be the soul's. For if Christ is a bridegroom, he must take upon himself the things which are the, his bride's, and bestow upon her the things that are his. If he gives her his body and very self, 
how shall he not give her all that is his? And if he takes the body of the bride, how shall he not take all that is hers? Beautiful. Powerful. And this is what we call, you know, the blessed exchange, or you'll see it called the happy exchange. Um, there are a number of um, terms that people use, but we can call it the blessed exchange. Double imputation. Yeah. Double what? Imputation. How, how do you think this blessed exchange works Christologically? What do you have to believe about Christ for this to work? He's died, he died the death that we should die to live the life that we couldn't live, right? Yeah. He has to fulfill the law in order to give us the right, his righteousness. Hmm. Yeah. You're getting at the hypostatic union? Yeah, kind of. Okay, I, th I thought you were going there, because Luther kind of goes there with this. <laughs> Yeah. Go oh no, 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 no! I, I would just yeah. Go ahead. I just I, I was just looking. I was thinking that's probably where he's going with this. That's it. Yeah. I don't yeah. have any comment on. It. But yes, yeah. Obviously, he's got to be both God and man to be mm -hmm. to be able to fulfill the, that. Yeah. yeah, and it's nice just how explicit that is. It says you know he had to be man so that he could die and take on our sins and our death, um, but he had to be God. Otherwise, that sin and death would have swallowed him up just like it does us. But, you know, when he talks about this in Galatians, there's this wrestling match that happens um, between Christ and sin, death, and the devil. But Christ, because he is God, is infinitely better than all these things and can destroy them in himself by taking them into his very being. Um, I, I, just, I just always find that, that idea stimulating. Um, just how the two natures of Christ are necessary for this thing to work. And that's kind of a, you know, a basic teaching, but um, you don't always see it explained or sort of worked out in a way like that. And he talks about it you know, just in the paragraph right below. Um, Christ is God and man in one person. He has neither sinned nor died and is not condemned, and he cannot sin, die, or be condemned. His righteousness, life, and salvation are unconquerable, eternal, omnipotent. By the wedding ring of faith, he shares in the sins, death, and pains of hell, which are his brides. As a matter of fact, he makes them his own and acts as if they were his own, and as, he, as if he himself had sinned. He suffered, died, and descended into hell that he might overcome them all. Now, since it was such a one who did all this, and death and hell could not swallow him up, these were necessarily swallowed up. By him in a mighty duel. Right. It's just this, this constant emphasis on his righteousness is greater than the sins of all men, his life stronger than death, his salvation more invincible than hell. Uh, you know, Christ as man is the one who's, you know, Christ as God and man is the one who steps in and takes all these things on, but it's because Christ is God that all of these things are defeated and destroyed and that there is new life.
Yeah, I could stay here for a long time, but if we can keep going, if y'all are, okay. Yep. Um, then, you know, the next thing after he describes these, um, these three things that faith does is he moves on to sort of a second part underneath this description of the passive righteousness we have, and that is what believers become in Christ. He says, believers in Christ be, become priests and kings, um, just as Christ is both priest and king for us. Um, and it's sort of playing on this Old Testament notion that the firstborn son you know, would have received the honor of you know, priesthood and kingship, which would have been a sort of prefiguring of Christ, who is the ultimate king and priest for us. But insofar as we are in Christ, we receive both of those honors. Um, and the way this works out is interesting. So if you are on the bottom of page um, 289, it says, first, first, with respect to the kingship, every Christian is by faith so exalted above all things that by virtue of a spiritual power, he is Lord of all things without exception, so that nothing can do him any harm. I think, I think the, the key to that is that um, just like Jesus' kingship was of a you know, spiritual kind, it wasn't um, the king who's marching around with armies, we have the same thing. It doesn't mean that there's nothing in the world that can't do us harm, but it's that we are set free from all all spiritual danger, as it were. We stand above all things in Christ. Um, so it's not that we become kings and have this sort of authoritarian power, but it's that we are kings insofar as we are released from all things standing above and over us. There is no sin, death, or devil to stand over you. Now, as he would say, what it means to be a king in this sense is that by God's power, all things work together for your good. And that all things are directed towards your ultimate salvation. But. So, real quick, so yeah. then is our spiritual dominion as kings just entirely spiritual? Or does it have any um, earthly authority? Or is it just an entirely spiritual authority? kingship and reign. Mm. I, um, I would say it's not an earthly power. And when he's going to talk about the, the way that we sort of move about in the world, he's going to do that under the priesthood. Um, so the example of the idea of being a king is just simply that there is nothing in the world spiritually that can stand over you to put you into subjection because you are in Christ and all things will be in subjection to him. Um, yeah, and he contrasts that with the appearance of the fact that it actually looks like you are in subjection. Yeah. He says, this is not to say that every Christian is placed over all things to have control of madness, blah, blah, blah. Uh, for such power belongs to kings, princes, and other men on earth. Mm -hmm. Our ordinary experience in life shows that we are subjected to all, mm -hmm. suffer many things, and even die. He's almost saying it actually doesn't look like we're kings. Mm -hmm. So he's contrasting the fact that we are with the fact that not, nothing on the earth makes it look like it. Yeah. Always playing on that, that 
distinction between appearances and true reality in Christ. Can you comment on the notion of being a priest as it, as Luther would speak about that? What when he says we are priests, what does he want? What does he want to say there? What does he mean there? Yeah. Um, so if you go to to page two ninety, um, he says. Not only are we the freest of kings, we are also priests forever. And he says this is a better thing. He says, For as priests we are worthy to appear before God, to pray for others, and to teach one another divine things. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's, a, it's a work of intercession, and it's a teaching. work of teaching. That was a linchpin for me, because when you get taught about the Protestant Reformation and Luther's understanding of priesthood of all believers, what we miss is not that we're our own priest, it's that we're each other's priests. Yeah. Um, that I can speak the word of Christ to my brother and he can speak the word of Christ to me. Yeah. I've heard it explained this way, which is helpful to me. We're a priest because we sacrifice for somebody else. We, as a people, give ourselves away. We give sacrifice of ourselves to another. Does that make sense? We, we are giving ourselves up as, as a sacrifice. So that's why. Romans 12. Yeah. yeah. We're, we're kings and priests. Interesting that uh, there's a conflict. You know, I mean, the threefold office of Christ, prophet, priest, and king. Mm-hmm. It seems like prophet and priest are conflated into priest. Hmm. At least from the sense of teaching the word. Or, sorry, divine things. Yeah. Teaching divine things. Is normally something in these in this threefold office that we put in the prophetic category, correct? Yeah, yeah. yeah I think um, that's. So I wonder what's to, what we make of that. The fact that he doesn't, like Calvin does, or like some of the other reformers, talk more about prophet, prophet, priest, and king. Threefold office. He's kind of making a twofold office. And mm. The divine things is part of the priestly office. Hmm. Do you think there is any? lost or anything problematic about that move? No, not necessarily. It feels historically conditioned because Luther was a priest. And what was he doing by saying you become a priest in Christ? Well, yeah, he's being very subversive to write to the Pope by saying everybody's a priest, not just the clergy. Mm -hmm. But it it was an office that all the congregation would have understood and that guy was still preaching or he would still have some role of teaching. Yeah. So it feels historically conditioned that Luther's just loading in because people are familiar with the concept of what a priest does. Mm-hmm. I don't know, I guess. Maybe. You know, all, all, of, <clears throat> all of these things come together to unpack you know, the first part of the paradox that structures this whole document. A Christian is a perfectly free Lord of all, subject to none. Um, we're freed from the law, we truly honor, honor God as he, as he should be honored, uh, and we are united to Christ such that we receive the same offices that Christ has. We are placed above all things, and we can intercede for others in that, in that place. Um, one thing that I think is curious on page 291 is, I, I wanted to bring this up just because this is a discussion of losing faith. Um, 
it says, from this, anyone can clearly see how a Christian is free from all things and over all things so that he needs no works to make him righteous and save him, <clears throat> since faith alone abundantly confers all these things. Should he grow so foolish, however, as to presume to become righteousness, a righteous, free, saved, and a Christian by means of some good work, he would instantly lose faith in all its benefits. A foolishness aptly illustrated in the fable of the dog who runs along a stream with a piece of meat in his mouth and deceived by the reflection of the meat in the water opens his mouth to snap at it and so loses both the meat and the reflection. <laughs> and we were talking earlier about, yeah, talking earlier about you know Luther thought you could lose faith in its benefits and I just wanted to bring this up as an example of the way he would describe that happening. But interestingly, that illustration doesn't fit what I think his conception of faith is. Mm. Faith is not something we hold on to. It's something that holds on to us. Yeah. We can't lose it precisely because it's gripping us. We're not gripping it. Yeah, and I, 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 mean, yeah I, get, I get entirely what you're saying. Um, I was talking about this earlier. I said that, that there's a tension. There's a real tension in Luther's understanding of how faith is God's work on and in you, yeah. and how you can lose it. Because that ultimately is just paradox. Um, and he's not going to resolve that paradox as far as I can see. Um, <clears throat> he's, he's talking about losing faith and its benefits. Mm -hmm. I'm wondering how pervasive he means, what he means by benefits. Because he's not saying you lose eternal security, but he's saying lose faith in its benefits. Is that a temporal faith in its benefits? No, I think he says you're losing your security, right? Yeah, I, I really think I, that's what he means. I think it, I think he does. Yeah. Okay. I'm realizing that this might be one of those places where you feel more need to sort of push Who back. Yeah. Yeah. I get it. I'm done. I just, <laughs> yeah. It almost to me, based on like what has come before, is a non sequitur. Mm. It doesn't follow from what he's developed that this must be the way it is conceived. Like, I don't know that you need to hang, hang on to this paradox, but I also don't understand his theology that well. So It's just something to know that's there. Yeah. Um, that he does have this conception of faith of it's a thing that the Holy Spirit does in you every day. Um, and that somehow it can be refused or rejected. But ultimately, I don't think we can find some great unity in the fact that this one thing is only God's work and this thing is only our work and how those two things can come into conflict in that way. So it's just, it's just a thing to know that is there. It, it, was it Luther who said, it's one of the hard things, you know, it's Luther or somebody else about it. Mm -hmm. you know, the Bible says it and does not believe it. Mm. Um, which is both something I love about Luther it's also frustrating mm -hmm. because he doesn't kind of hide behind. I mean, he's happy to live with a lot of tension, yeah. a lot of paradox, a lot of seeming inscrutability. Yeah. Um, whether it's the hardening of Pharaoh or the sailors on the ship with Jonah or whatever else, faith is given and faith is lost. That all men are given over to perdition so that Christ may have mercy on them all. He just kind of pulls all those things really tight and doesn't necessarily answer it. Mm. Is that, am I, am I in the right, am I in the vein here? When he talks about these paradoxes, I was looking to see if he had a scriptural support here, and he, he doesn't just, just ace off so we can 
<laughs> just Aesop, yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, and there's, there's a certain amount of that. He, Luther, more so than a lot of theologians who aren't sort of apophatic theologians, is willing to concede a lot of things to mystery. Just saying, you know, by our reason we will never come to a, the understanding of how these things fit together or work. And a lot of times he was just willing to say we've come about as far as we can and the rest we have to ultimately leave to the mystery of God's working on us. These courses provide a glimpse into our academic programs. Knox students can take one week or semester length courses in person at our South Florida campus or choose to complete a degree entirely online. By bringing together academic excellence, a vibrant community of learning, and flexible scheduling, Knox offers today's students timeless truth through modern convenience. For more information about earning credit toward a master's degree, please visit our website at knoxseminary.edu.